Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Cab. Yes, it's Collateral Confessions, Miami Nice's LA nighttime digression with my wonderful co-host and navigator, Katie Walsh. Hello, Katie. Hello. Um, So we are driving around in this yellow cab and the passenger we have tonight, yes, he is creepy. Yes, he is mysterious. Yes, he has had coyotes come upon him in the night. Yes, he has a body double sticker on his laptop. Yes, he is one of the most talented critical minds, one of the best writers I know, one of the most powerful and gushy podcast guests. And when he dedicates himself to anything that he is obsessed with, he's just the best and we love him. And it's so great to have him back. You would have heard him on our most recent mashup podcast, Increment Nice. He, of course, is the host of Increment Vice. It is Travis Woods. Hello, my friend. Creepy. <laughs> the fuck? Creepy. I, I was gushing. Like I know you're. I know you're a little hungover, and you're grabbing, for, <laughs> grasping for words wherever you can find them. But and listen, you, you, you started t- at creepy and ended the arc with gushy. <laughs> Travis, creepy with love. <laughs> creepy with love. You are a man who is writing the definitive Brian De Palma book right now. <laughs> That's passion. passion. Yeah, passion, horniness. I'm passionate. I'm passionate. Yes, yes. He Work. was trying to say you're mysterious. Mysterious. I, 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 I mean, I'm not, but I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. Mysterious, yes. Um, you're getting no in the boy. cab. You're. We don't know what your intentions are. Yeah, we don't know. You're Sometimes... flashing stacks. Sometimes don't you guys miss taxi cab confessions? Yes, it's, that's oh what show. this is. That's, that's what this is. I, I mean, I, yeah, I get it. I know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not as on point as I should be today. I'm, <laughs> I'm so thrown by Blake calling me creepy. My, oh, I love my, you. I my just fragile eggshell e- ego is, is crumbling. You just can't see the love in my eyes because I have sunglasses on during this <laughs> he episode. He does. Blake is on Gatorade number two. It's six a.m. Australia time. He yeah, is. This yeah, man is dedicated <laughs> to the podcast lifestyle. That's um, the discipline, folks. In the parlance of our show and our entire community, that's the discipline. When we go like, out uh, and we put our Miami nice cap on, we must go out and consume mojitos. And then when yeah, it's time for an early a... morning cab ride, we're waking up, we're hitting the Gatorades, we're getting our sunglasses on, we're too early in the morning <laughs> and we're going. This is what's happening. Blake was out all night at a at a jazz club. Then he uh, spent the morning sleeping on Neil McCulley's floor. Pushed himself <laughs> up. Get get a big some, swollen elbow. When are you going to get some furniture? When I get around to it. Um, so, we've we've been having lots of conversations recently. I think some Hall of Fame chats um, uh, uh, 
Miami Vice Hall of Fame chat with you, Trav. Such a fun time talking. Um, like a year we, ago. Yeah. This time uh, last year. Was it exactly? And I'm gonna a year be. I'm, I'm. I'm sober. Speaking of drinking, I'm actually sober this time. Oh my god. Well, yeah. well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but you. But we'll you. <laughs> But you have, but you have also, uh, in the last episode that we did talk about, you did help Katie Walsh's nerves before the Miami Vice screening, the American Cinema Tech with a uh, mango mojito, and uh, mm. you guys held held the Vice Summit. But there's always more to talk about with man, and you're always a fu- like such a fun person to talk to about it. You're one of my favorites, and uh, Katie and I couldn't wait to get you to talk back on uh, to back on the show to talk about it because you're an you're an LA person now missouri uh, missourian originally to la but you have a particular um i, I want to say like a particular sort of style or a particular affinity for like a, a you know affinity for the style of la movies in all of their different sort of genres and all over mm. time you know whether it's all the way back to sort of like 50s detective noir all the way to contemporary stuff like point break which katie you know one of katie's favorite movies so we really wanted to get you in the cab here to talk about collateral and to talk about where it fits um and and what your big takeaways from it are because i know that i believe you've seen it a couple of times in the last couple of years on the big screen as well am i wrong about that yeah yeah i am well i'll start off by saying yes i am an la aficionado i think i'm closing in on having lived in la longer than i've actually lived in the dreaded horrible state from which i uh come from i've been in la nearly 20 years now um so um yeah uh i i will start this off by saying i have seen uh collateral uh theatrically a couple times including uh at beyond fest i believe it was last year maybe the year before all time was kind of folding in on itself uh these days but i saw it uh with michael mann in attendance and before we even mm. talk about the movie i just want to share this this anecdote just because i think it's fucking adorable I uh, went to go see uh, the film with uh, our mutual buddy, Jordan Harper, and um, we're watching the movie and Jordan starts giving me like the elbow uh, and kind of like, you know, nodding to the left. And I look over and surreptitiously winding his way through the aisles midway through the film is Michael fucking man, because he's going to do a Q&A between this film and the second film, which was Steve. And uh, it's right about the time. What a yeah, double feature. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, it's right about the time of the the nightclub shootout. And so man ends up sitting like next to us, like just like one seat down. Right. What? With, I, Same I, row? Yeah, like like <laughs> like literally like I, he was with someone I assume is his wife. Um, but uh there were some seats, you know, they they'll they mark the seats off of Beyond okay. Fest for speakers and stuff, and we just happened to be in that aisle. Um and you know jordan's like you know nudging me and i look over and it's fuck it's, it's michael mann sitting there and what was great about it is you you think i or at least i do you assume michael mann is this kind of cold and placable uh you know just force of icy intellectual intellectualism and artistry and i and during the the shootout which is hypnotizing i i, I managed to peel my eyes away and, and keep looking over at him because the longer that shootout went on and not just the shootout but the action and um the waves of security forces working against uh vincent in that sequence 
man starts rocking side to side like fucking John Doe in the police car at the end of seven. <laughs> and he starts like giggling and you can see and he starts nudging the way Jordan was nudging me. He starts nudging. I guess it was his wife. Starts nudging her and like elbowing her and like giggling. And it was so it was just so fun and sweet to see that he was just getting such a fucking kick out of his movie and the way the you know that sequence um that, that thing plays like a song it's um it's great and watching him watch that and see that and you could feel the electricity of the crowd who i don't think most of them knew he was he had walked in he'd walked in yeah. um because we were sitting kind of in the middle towards the back and but uh and and so he was just watching them react and the crowd was the there was really a thrum in the crowd during that sequence because you know the movie it's not like it's boring by any means but the movie really snaps itself awake during that sequence it kind of is building to that um you know and then it climaxes with the wreck right after uh and just watching him watch his own work and getting such a kick at it giggling like a little kid and like i said just rocking side to side like he couldn't sit still uh that is a treasured memory a movie uh memory for me a treasured michael mann movie memory uh, and i just like that uh yeah you know it, it it was a different side of him, I think, than what we get from the public persona. He was literally like giggling like a little boy. And I love that. I love the, that. that. That is such a beautiful story. And I want to tell everyone, if you haven't gone back to listen to Michael Mann on our shows, you should. And I think every a lot of people have gone back and listened to the finale of One Heat Minute. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, but it's actually a f sometimes funnier conversation to listen to to him pop in for the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans because that was one of the first times where he was, I saw the glee and I guess the playfulness more so in that because I remember yeah. when I was asking him about, like you said, this is like, it plays like a song and it's like the Paul Oakenfeld, like, like amazing tune, just like, it's so uh, hypnotic and so catchy. And I remember when he was describing last of the Mohicans, I was like, you know, you, you're, you're setting it to this song. It like, it is, it's so percussive it's put together like a watch and he was just like he actually said it had i was so obsessed it had to be fucking perfect and he was just like and that was his aspiration you know like so it's so funny to hear him even like all these decades later still having such a passion for that perfection so it like it doesn't surprise me that he was getting a kick out of it because i don't imagine he's just like putting it on chucking on collateral in the ford pass theater ad or whatever or checking it out you know he's not doing it all the time but like to still see that it's making an impact and clearly i i haven't seen collateral in a theater i don't think there's been many rep screenings in australia but man i would love to see it in a theater projected on a beautiful 4k i think it would look amazing collateral yeah, in the theater plays. is a ripper i yeah. saw it i cannot imagine what the beyond fest audience oh. was like i was not there probably because my sister was getting married but if it was <laughs> last year she? I know. She? um next year she needs to next time she gets married she needs to consult with me just kidding um she <laughs> won't get married another time but um uh the like i saw it at the new bev on like a friday afternoon <laughs> with yeah. like that crowd and it played like a comedy and yeah. it was so fun um, but, you know, of course, it plays like a comedy because you have Tom Cruise, like, doing his villainous self. But, uh, you know, but then you have the great nightclub shootout sequence and everyone's just losing their shit over that. So, yeah, it's so fun with a with an audience. It's one of the top ten experiences. Now, Katie, okay, this is your this is oh, your favorite. Man, oh, it, it, it? it is. It Katie's is. Favorite, man. It is. But, Travis, Katie, you know what this screening was, right? This was the night where we got 
bombarded on Twitter because someone oh, yes. allegedly <laughs> asked a Miami Vice question. And I've forgotten to ask Travis, who was in the audience. No, Mark Olson told us it wasn't true. No, Mark he moderated Olson said it, the Q&A. Yeah, yeah, he said it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. true. But so there was no Miami Vice question no, with Michael no, Mann's no, puzzlement. No, uh -uh. Uh -uh. Okay, see, so this is we're dispelling myths here, guys. That there were. I mean, I would these, have like, texted Twitter you guys rants. from. Yeah. I would have sent you messages <laughs> like from there. <laughs> yeah, uh, of course. Had that happened, what do we? I thinking? mean, I would have. What do we? Thinking? I would have. I would have. Uh, like, I think you know, Jordan and I both would have sent you guys SOS. Like, like, give us something to ask about Miami Vice if he's talking about it. No, no, no. Um, but I was just curious before we dive into chewing the rag on this movie proper. Uh. Uh, what what makes this Katie? What makes this your favorite man? Oh, um, good question. Um, I think I love that it's an LA movie, and mm. I always talk about how like I love that he gets the geography of LA right, and it's like very intrinsic, obviously, to the story of the movie. Um, but I think I just like that it starts and doesn't stop. It's short it's just like relentless the momentum never at, you know doesn't take its foot off the um gas i i love tom cruise uh i love jamie fox i i don't know i just it's just like a perfect little bite it's not even a little bite it's a big bite but it's uh it's just everything about it is is i think there's not there's no not, not an inch of fat on the thing and um uh, I don't know. I just like you. I you start watching it and you realize that like all all other movies don't have the same sense of ease that this one does. There's something about it where you're just like he makes it look easy. Makes this really intricate thing look easy. I think the thing yeah. also that has brought it up in my estimations. You know, it's so hard to even know what my rankings are beyond Heat is number one, and then you know next could be any of four movies but like even the things that we've learned like talking on this so like justin lieberman who was an assistant on the set told us a story of like tom cruise doing his sixth or seventh take a walk up to an apartment building and michael's looking behind the camera looking at the viewfinder having a chat to his you know dop and they're getting tom to do it again and tom quickly walks over and he's like oh is everything okay like what am i doing something wrong and and michael shows him like a playback and goes, no, there was this great sort of half a shot where a plane was, you know, plane light was flickering in the background of you walking. And I'm just trying to see if we can get one that's going down the similar flight path. And Tom Cruise is like, oh, I'll get my plane to fly. And then rings in the night, in the middle of the night, like some airport somewhere, like in the south of LA or whatever, and gets a pilot up in the air in his plane with the lights on to fly through their shot. And I'm like, Jesus goddamn Christ. I'm like, these <laughs> yeah. guys, I go, aren't they a match made in heaven? These two yeah. psychos aren't the, 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 and I say that with such love <laughs> right. and reverence, like the, yeah, these two the, psychos. there's, they're my favorites. Just, I think it, it is that combo of, of man and Cruz yeah. being completely obsessive perfectionists and, and Cruz playing a villain and I don't know. I just, I love it so much. I don't know why I just, yeah. Well, that's probably I, why uh Cruz works so well here is because Cruz from all that we know about him is kind of a Michael Mann character in yeah. his yeah. Um, uh, obsessive, almost uh, pathological 
uh, dedication uh, to perfection, um, even if that perfection is like intentionally a flawed perfection. Uh, he, uh, it's, it's, it, yeah. He, he kind of like, just occurred to me just as we're talking about this. He is kind of a walking, talking. Uh, uh, he's a man, man. He is. <laughs> he, he is totally a is. He's a real man, man. man, man. Um, and I, and I, and I, 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 I don't think I've heard that episode. Uh, uh, so that's 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 insane to me. I mean, it's insane, but also totally expected. That, that's yeah, the other, that. that's and, the other thing. So you tell people that story, and their first reaction is like, "That's insane." And then they're like, "Oh, that no, that." And they're that, like, that, "Ah, that, well, yeah." I mean, the motherfucker's driving motorcycles off mountains here uh, to to, to to save. The cinema. least I mean, he can do is just yeah, sure. fly a plane from Van Nuys to <laughs> downtown and on a very specific timed. Which on, on another... a specific vector. I need a vector. <laughs> yeah. A vector. A vec- yeah. mm. Oh, look at Blake. Um, which again is another uh, uh, argument for uh, the the smeary uh, digital photography of this film, which I know some people nitpick, but um, uh, that's the only way to shoot to shoot at night and not sit up for nineteen hours. Is nitpicking. Uh, <laughs> well, people, ha- you know, people have, you know, you know, people have. Um, oh, I, I need that, a list of yeah. names. Uh, but Kate, I was, I, Katie's I like Jay and Silent Bob in Jay and Silent Bob's truck back just with a phone book going to people's houses door to door and beating them up. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm, beat anyone up. I'm just gonna ask. You to know, talk some to people them. they get pissy. They get pissy about digital man. And as much uh, a proponent of film as we might be, uh, the, the the digital photography. Uh, even 2004 digital photography um, looks rather lovely uh, in this in in this film, uh, and uh, uh, the the definitions that it finds in the darkness. It's such a great as Katie, as you said. I mean, I'm, I'm not blowing anyone's hair white by by declaring this, but it's such a great Los Angeles movie. And as much as I think so much of cinema, the cinema of LA is focused on sunshine. Uh, LA it has such a character at night. It has such a there's such a vibe, uh, to use that horrible word. It has such a vibe at night, and the way that the digital cameras capture uh, Katie, I think, will know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a very specific feeling of Los Angeles at night, where it gets a little humid, the air's a little wet, the orange sodium vapor streetlights are reflected against the bottom of this canopy of clouds, so the sky takes on this bizarre. Kind of burnt orange pallor and there's always these very these two tall palm trees curving up against that like burnt orange orange cataract like like the rib cage of some dead giant and uh la just has that very still odd surreal feeling at night that uh, celluloid can't quite capture uh without you know you, you need too many lights for film it would blow all of that away and I, just a quick shout out to the digital photography the uh, photography of this film which i think is staggeringly beautiful and i don't know that i've seen another film that captures los angeles at night in quite the same way it, it's it's so it's so fucking beautiful uh take everything else away it's just such a beautiful portrait of la at night yeah and i think the the form follows the function the storytelling the subtext because or serves it doesn't follow it because it's the thing about the digital photography is that it captures so much more of la at night which another thing we talked to both elliot 
kind of and Justin about too is that like Elliot was talking about how if you're using um, Elliot Koretz, the supervising sound editor, if you're using digital cameras, you're capturing so many more images or depth of field because it's not the blackest blacks of celluloid. And so then you suddenly have to layer in all these other sounds of things that you can see. Um, and I think it captures like the expansiveness of LA at night and the stuff that's out there. It doesn't feel claustrophobic. This, this film to me, it feels open and expansive. And there are things like coyotes that can come running out onto the street um, or whatever it is, the predators of any kind <laughs> that can come that, out. That has happened to me. I sent you guys that video. I, it was like, uh, yes, it looked like a shot from uh, 2 50 this movie. In the morning, <laughs> I was at a red light, 2.50 a.m. Silver Lake. And uh, it was January, still cold outside. And while I'm waiting for the light to go green, there's just coyote crosses the street, stops, looks at me and then just keeps on its way literally like out of the movie i mean um you would have expected uh, uh audio slave to start blaring from my speakers uncontrollably <laughs> when it please happened. tell me you just started singing i know i've got the, we've got the footage and i was hoping so much that i started to hear you go once upon a time uh, i just wanted oh something boy. travis oh i wanted boy. something michael man's taste in music oh boy that's a whole other podcast i um, know his 21st <laughs> Listen, I've, century I've taste in music is uh well, anyway, um, Katie, what uh, was your playlist that you shared with me recently on Spotify? It was like, did I, you, like you told me the name of one of your playlists. It was like trashy. What was the title of it? I'm going to go find oh, it. Oh, yes. Um, I made this playlist with a friend of mine. It was like something bangers. It was like horrible bangers or something. <laughs> yes. That's, um, that, but that's... I don't know. That I would call it, um, wait, oh, cringe bops. Cringe bops. Cringe bops. <laughs> That's it, yeah. I don't know that I, I mean, maybe Audio Slave could be a cringe bop. <laughs> I do have some, a lot of, I have 311 and Limp Biscuit oh, and hey. um, Crazy Town <laughs> and cringe bops, um, Travis. That's exactly the purpose. Oh, oh my God. So, oh my god it just started something just started playing um oh buck cherries on here oh god <laughs> nickelback Jeez, uh, obviously and, and yeah. various other ones it was uh it was a playlist i love this playlist i made it with my best friends from growing up and so we were just putting on we were just laughing and screaming about like horrible songs that we used to like or still do like yes mm. But yeah, Audio Slave, I don't know. It's on the border of a cringe bot. You know, Michael Mann, he could, he met so powerful is his filmmaking that he could even make Moby cool twice. (laughs) Two different (laughs) films. He just hasn't yet accomplished that vis-a-vis audio slave for me. I Uh, I I don't know. I think people like the audio slave. It's actually three. It's actually three. Three Mobies? Three Mobies in Ali. There is an oh, amazing, yep, yep, there is you're an right. amazing you're movie right. track. I'm wrong. Yeah. I made a fool of myself. You're right. No, you're not a, no, um, you're not a fool. I'm just a psycho. This is, <laughs> it's just, it's just um, I'm the person who's going and listening to Michael Mann soundtracks very frequently. Very But frequently. also in Collateral, he has that root song. Yes. Um, and I think he would like he made all his assistants, like make him a playlist. And he was like, I just, I'm trying to imagine him like being like, yeah, this one's good. <laughs> 
<laughs> a listening uh, party with Michael Mann to decide what's getting in the movie. Now oh that's a fun, that's a fun meeting. That's a great meeting. Yeah. Come to me with what is your bangers. <laughs> yes. Bring me your cringe bops. <laughs> Bring me your cringe bops. <laughs> what, what sounds like LA to you? <laughs> yeah. So good. So before we, again, I keep saying, so before we get into the movie, even though we're into the movie, but before we get into the stuff that I was going to mention about the movie, one one more question. How come Vincent doesn't fly into Burbank if he's so smart? <laughs> if he's so fucking smart, like, why isn't he just flying to Burbank? Because he's like on an international flight or That's, something. Oh, you know what? There it is. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yes. You're right. I'm. Uh, it's not a domestic flight. He's not bopping down from SF. Okay, can sure. I please? Can I? Yeah, he's not from San Francisco. Uh, that yeah, he's not from SF at that time. I mean, he's, I know that. I know, yeah, I mean, man's man's uh, secret backstory for Vincent is that he he uh, uh, to use man's uh, parlance, he has a domicile in Thailand. Uh, domicile in Thailand. Off, offshore, Thailand. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you know what? That's right. That's why he wouldn't, because you got to international flights. Yeah. Now, can okay. can can we please now? This tr- this beautiful triangulation together make mm. a promise. Mm. When, and I think at at the rate my hair is going gray, it's going to be perfect for like a next year visit. When I come into LAX, we're, I will we're be in a just... gray suit, and I would like one of you to bump into me <laughs> while we carry briefcases, <laughs> and the other one of us, I don't care who bumps into me, but then then we just yeah okay yeah I'm okay, and then just walk away from each other in in the crowd of LAX. And just do that and then have that footage for us. That's I think that's mm. the only way that I'd like to be, you know, collected from LAX by you guys. Yeah. Bring and my, then... my finest attache case. <laughs> yeah, <you're fine. laughs> and, and then we're gonna just drive the route of collateral. Yeah. That's and it. we're not taking you back to, at, to your hotel or your wherever <laughs> you're staying until we do the entire, entire movie. <laughs> movie. <laughs> And you're like, I'm exhausted. I'm jet lagged. And we're like, no, 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 I haven't gotten I, you to won't club. Hear, you won't, you won't hear that from me. I'll be like, let's, I can't <laughs> wait to get to Oakenfeld. Let's do this. Wait, what's that club called again? Like club club fever, club fever. Yeah. I was going to say club fire. <laughs> um, I want to go to club fever. I really want to go to club fever. <laughs> I really do. I want to keep this party going. There's a party happening last <laughs> night. I'm like, I'm ready. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm ready. Rally, um, rally. <laughs> rally. We'll be right back after Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Just quick break. So to talk, let's let, to, 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 to dive into a couple of things I wanted to talk about with this movie, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you guys a choice. Do you want to start with the uh, long and storied history of Chicano murals in Los Angeles or uh, Socrates killing himself with hemlock? 
after his trial. Which one do we want to do? Okay, murals it is. Um, murals, murals it is. Um, we're gonna we're, we're gonna roll with it. Eching, little jazz. Um, so uh, the film begins when well after the the LAX moment. Um, the film begins with Max the cabbie uh, leaving his uh, the, the cab garage, and there is a very kind of blinker. You'll miss it. But uh, as he's pulling out, there is a mural, uh, this massive mural on a wall of a headless horseman fighting a bull. The, he- the horseman is headless uh, because the artist who painted that mural in 1974 uh, quit before they were done and left it unfinished. So you have this uh, vaquero, this cowboy, this headless cowboy uh, being chased by this angry looking black bull. And this mural is uh is which you know for people who aren't in la uh la is kind of known as the mural capital of the world because of our long-standing history of mural artwork uh since the original settlement of the pobladores in los angeles uh, hundreds of years ago uh, chicano art has been a foundational part of the culture of this area and part of that especially in the 20th century was mural art spreading across the city and one of such murals the one i'm talking about now which is located in estrada courts which is this federal housing project with a bunch of murals and i swear to god blake knows this katie i'm gonna remind you i am gonna get somewhere with this um uh now the thing is the thing is uh, Estrada Courts, which is, a, like I said, it's a federal housing project in Boyle Heights. And that is where man, because he's an L.A. guy, he saw this mural. And he insisted that the production team replicate that mural awesome. in uh, front of this this cab stand set. And I was curious, you know, you make you, you wonder why, you, you know, or at least because I'm insane and, and creepy, according to Blake, uh, I wondered With why. Love. And it, you know, I realize uh, that that kind of really is the film in microcosm, at least to me, uh, an unfinished writer or a driver being chased by this this monstrous uh, bull, uh, this monster. And in the film, we have the same thing. We have an unfinished man who is being chased by a monster. Uh, and in being chased by that monster is actually kind of catalyzed and actualized into being a complete person. And it's one of those little things where, you know, if you don't think about, if you're not insane, you don't think about stuff like that. The movie works just fine. Uh, but then <laughs> when you're insane, uh, and you see something like that, it, it adds just this level of, of beauty to the movie, uh, and sadness the movie at least for me because uh this is really as much as it is just um Stuart Beatty's you know really cracker jack uh uh premise you know what if a what if an assassin gets in your cab you're kind of stuck with the guy uh to me the, the, this movie is it, it's it's really kind of a almost a tragedy or of a of a character study of someone like Max uh, who lives a very unfinished life just as, as this muralist left his painting undone. And, you know, I was watching the film again yesterday and I, I was thinking to myself how it, it really is like a, a chamber music 
piece covering meditating on the the orchestral themes of heat it's it's heat kind of in miniature in a way and i'm i think part of that was because since this is the only project i believe of man's that he did not write that he he was looking for a project that uh condensed that took place over a condensed period of time in los angeles uh you know i wonder if when when man found this script he's like my only way in i've got to hang something on this film that i that i can understand and what he did is in, at least in my eyes is it's odd to me that everyone got so excited about heat too because collateral has always kind of felt like heat too to me in <laughs> that it is kind of an application of man's obsessions which reach full flower and heat it's kind of an application of those to this film because in heat you have these two men who are kind of unfinished in some way. They, they are missing something. Uh, you know, for Neil, you could say it's Fiji, you could say it's Edie. And for uh, Vincent, it's just the next, the next person that is his prey. And together, these two forces, they come together and inadvertently, they inadvertently allow for only one of the two of them to achieve what man calls the heightened experience of their life. And it's interesting that this film, which also features a main character named Vincent, uh, is about these two men who are both missing something. Uh, one literally in that Vincent is a sociopath and he is missing standard parts that a normal human being would have. And the other is figuratively missing something, which is uh, Max, who is missing that, that, that barrier. He's missing that thing that would allow him to actualize himself and pursue his dreams. And they inadvertently goad each other uh, towards the other side of the fence uh, in a way, though, that only allows one of them to achieve any kind of uh, actualization or goal. And I know I'm, I'm rambling now, as I tend to do, but that all comes back to that mural to me of a bull chasing a incomplete figure uh, to achieve, and, and in a weird way, and it, almost the see it's going somewhere in a weird way to me collateral the film is the finishing brush strokes that were begun in 1974 by that muralist in a way that man finishes that muralist's portrait with collateral in which the headless writer the headless cowboy uh becomes finished becomes actualized becomes complete through the events of the film which Yes, the, the, I know it's nuts, but like that 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 was my it's, takeaway watching the movie yesterday. I think it's a great take because it's not as nuts as you might think just right from like that outset is because the amazing Alex Colville painting of the man standing against the glass window with a gun in the background oh, on his sort of like true. sketch table is this sort of anonymized person who's like work his on his workbench is a gun. Um that was a core inspiration like that was the mood board if you like for neil mccauley and heat and so when you, true, see, yeah. when you see that mural it's just like you know i i think what you put it really really phenomenally which is that like stuart Beatty's crackerjack as you put it script is really hard to penetrate and break down and and like and dismantle because it's structured so beautifully but you know the the change of setting the change of some of those themes, the 
adding in of the Los Angeles culture is all of the Michael Mann stuff. Like that's why I think us manheads love it so much is because it's, it's these tactical doses of all of these thematic preoccupations that we love that are just applied and fused to this like really speedy thing. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it's a, I think it's a fantastic uh, take. And also uh, he does that. Like, you know, we were talking about it with like, um, with it's, it's happened in, you know, movies like Black Hat, it's happened in Miami Vice where he like sees murals and uh, on the streets of different places around the world, you know, see it at El Este or Haiti or whatever. He sees a mural on a wall and he's like, I want that mural or I want that artist to do that mural again. I'll do a copy of that mural in a subterranean basement where Jose Euro is going to, you know, throw a grenade or, you know, get a grenade held in front of his face, et cetera. Um, and be threatened to become a, his own Jackson Pollock, you know, like he, he loves taking those things because there is something like, you know, everything's intentional and that's why he's such a fun filmmaker to constantly talk about and revisit because that one detail for you is, is it helps you unlock the theme of the movie and it definitely happens across all of his work. Like he finds that inspiration. And sometimes when it's, when he wants to see those images, like he'll actually manufacture it. So it's kind of like the subtext of the movie is he wants, he wants you to see it in that moment. Like, especially right at the very start of the movie. I think that's really cool. I just want to touch on one thing you said, Travis, that kind of confused me for a second, but then brought up some interesting uh, ideas, but you said you were talking about heat and Macaulay. And then you said, and Vincent is looking for his next prey. And I thought you were talking about Vincent Collateral, mm. but you were no, talking, about Vincent, talking about Hannah. Vincent Hannah. Yeah. yeah. And his prey is uh, Macaulay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I would not describe him that as a predator, but he is in that sense. Um, so that was an interesting point for me. And then you started talking about Vincent Collateral and Max and that he you know that vincent is also a predator looking for prey and he's even more like kind of lizard brain oriented yeah. in some ways like i believe in the third act of the movie that he like goes he turns into a shark or a coyote or a terminator um and just goes full animal feral um He's been but, wearing a, his human mask for two yes. acts of the movie and then once he hits club fever all of that is shed. It's like, see ya. It's gone. Right. Once he sees the coyote and he's like, yeah. recognizes himself. But um, I don't know. It was just really interesting to hear you describe Vincent Hanna as a predator because I would not have categorized him that way. And my take on uh, collateral is like, what happens when you put a psychopath and an empath who are both deeply professional men mm. who need to get a job done? into this closed space and like how does that work out because there are so many times in collateral where you're like max just leave yeah drive <laughs> yeah. away he, like there are reasons why he doesn't right like oh his mom or the body or whatever but like you there are many moments where you're just like run away <laughs> And he just like has to get the job done. He's like, I'm going to get this job done. But he also is like such an empath in such a way that he like connects to this woman who he now feels he needs to protect. And I know this is like kind of a hot take, but I think that, I don't know, like is, is Hannah, is Vincent Hannah also 
the empath and Macaulay the psychopath? Like, what's the dynamic there? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think Hannah is is to, to how much, however much I can stretch that term, an empath. You know, you you watch throughout the film, and also, um, man's excellent film school level uh, commentary track for Heat. You know, he constantly is mentioning that sometimes to his own emotional dissolution, Hannah will force himself, force himself to to listen, to take in sensory input that pains him because it might be of use somewhere down the line, whether it's literally holding the mother of a dead yeah, teenage sex yeah. worker That's what I'm, um, yeah, and that communicating is... with her because there might be something he can use later, whether it's you know the, the 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 central scene the central sequence of heat when uh hannah and macaulay are sitting uh at kate mantellini's uh which was instigated by hannah hannah's doing it because he is out of options he is out of ideas and the thinking of his character in that moment is maybe if i just sit down and talk to this motherfucker I will glean something i will empathically sense something i will recognize something of his humanity that I can use to, as a predator, catch him later. And what does Hannah learn? What is what does Hannah get? I have a woman out of. I have a woman. That's what he gets out, gets out of Macaulay in the talk. Is, I've got a woman. Well, what do you? What do you what, I, I tell her I'm a salesman. And how does that come into play at the airport at the end of the film? He sees one confused woman sitting in a car, looking around and waiting for someone. Amongst uh -huh. so, the no, chaotic I, panic of an evacuation, there is a woman yeah, sitting yeah. in a car looking for a man. And right. so I think that I, I think that you know yes I think Macaulay is a is a sociopath or or psychopath whichever uh, in that you when know when it rains he, you get wet when it rains right. you get wet which is just uh, I mean that's some, Ted, that's some Ted Bundy shit <laughs> he might be, he <laughs> might love Edie but that is some Ted Bundy shit whereas brutal. Vincent's goal is the preservation of life at all costs right. and you could even you could argue to a degree that that is also what Max is doing in this film is um, especially in that third act when you know, Vincent basically becomes Jason Voorhees. Uh, yeah, yeah. Max, Max could walk. After the wreck, Max could walk. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, or hobble as it is. Uh, but instead he, uh, he decides to return and to fight to preserve life at all costs. And so again, it is very much kind of a heat in, in miniature to me it's, it's also another film that is uh, a panorama of los angeles i mean what is the tagline of heat a los angeles crime saga um and so i think and i don't mean that to to heat to to collateral's detriment i think it's more man taking a work that was not organically his own and ha attaching it with his own obsessions uh, yeah. as a way to find find his what to find his way in and just just as much as uh macaulay inadvertently goads every move every every move that macaulay makes presses hannah further and further or presses or pulls hannah closer and closer to murdering him uh every and, and just as like in uh collateral you watch that movie the first time and those scenes in the uh in the cab hey lady Macbeth, you know lady Macbeth, you no longer have the you know the cleanest cab in all uh these scenes where Tom Cruise is espousing his philosophy. You know, the first time you watch that, you could just be like, oh, well, this is just a cool crime guy doing cool crime shit, saying cool, you know, nihilistic shit. 
um, like a, like a, like a villainous rust coal or some shit like that. Um, <laughs> you know, where it's like, Oh, this is, this is just a character. This is just screenwriting one Oh one where a character is, I don't sleep. I dream. Are. <laughs> yeah. This, this is a character just showing us who they are vis-a-vis their philosophy. But instead, no, when you, when you watch scenes like that, uh, Vincent's speeches are designed for a purpose. Uh, what his, what, what man calls facile nihilism, uh, especially like say in that scene after um, he kills the CI, the guy, the, the fat man that falls out of his window. Uh, Max is in shock. Max is slipping into an almost fugue-like state uh, as he's trying to drive. He's in, he's just in full-on shock, you know, just picking up sandwiches off of his seat. And Vincent, in an expert uh, move of psychological manipulation, starts... Uh, challenging max and challenging max's beliefs by bombarding him with you know weapons grade level nihilism he's not but he's not doing that for the reason you might think he is when you first watch it which is just like i said that screenwriting 101 characters are what they say no he's doing that because he is keeping he's keeping max sharp on the edge where he's got to be and he is pulling my uh, max out of uh, that fugue state but what is interesting about that is that Vincent is too effective and yeah. by con- constantly challenging Max with this philosophical assault, he is actually actualizing Max. He is angering Max, this headless vaquero. He is angering the headless cowboy into as a as a counter move to form formulating his own anti-Vincent philosophy. And that's where, again, the, the meat of the film, to me, mirrors so much of Heat, where one character makes a move that actualizes the other character against him. Uh, every For every move that Vincent makes to draw an outline around Max as a, uh, as a psychotic spree killer, uh, taxi driver, uh, because, you know, he's going to end the movie by uh, putting one, two in the chest, one in the head of, uh, of Max's body and leaving him to be the suspect in all these killings. Uh, but what he's actually doing is he, he thinks he's drawing that outline around Max, but what he's forcing Max to do is to draw his own outline. He is forcing the muralist to finish the head of this cowboy. He is forcing Max to come up with his own moral code and moral compass and his own image, philosophical image. And I know we're getting like heady here, but that's so much of the movie to me is that is max actualizing in the face of uh vincent's philosophical taunting we were talking about these like these polarities like the psychopath Mm -hmm. the empath the the predator the prey the but it's all i think it's so interesting what you're saying about like about the self-actualizing but to, to also think about who is proactive and who is reactive, especially mm-hmm. in these dynamics. And I think it's easy to look at Max as a very reactive character, and he is for a lot of the movie. And then, but if he's also aligned with, if we are making this thought experiment, you know, if he's also aligned with Vincent Hanna, you know, Vincent Hanna is very proactive. Like he's going out and getting Macaulay and drawing him in, but they're like in this weird dance together. And I think that's, that's why we like love these movies so much and rewatch them constantly because we can't get enough of this dance of these two polar opposites who are more, are closer and more alike than they think, or we might assume. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, this this metaphor that I'm using, it only goes so far. I mean, I'm obviously, you know. Um, can, but can I lay one last he's thing not before a, we he's say He's not a hard-ass cop. Can I lay the one thing? But it's, to your point, it's like, what is actualization? But like actually knowing that your your hands are on the wheel sort of thing. So there's that great mm -hmm. moment where he's like, he actually realizes, oh shit, I'm in a cab. I'm like the one the, driving the car. I'm, I'm driving the, the car. I'm, I'm riding the horse. I'm, I'm the cowboy the riding the horse. Like yeah, and, and, the, bull, and he, the bull is chasing me. And he's like, oh, no, how about if I just flip this fucking thing? I'm going to yeah. literally flip. Right, I'm gonna, I'm right. Gonna, it's like, I am in control. He keeps you know telling what, Vincent, me that go I'm fuck yourself. Yeah, exactly that. that exactly that. Such uh, a great But that's the thing is, he would never have been capable of doing that yeah. if Vincent hadn't existed. He just and that's the thing. Prodded um, it out of him. He like Anna. Anna would not have reached the the heightened experience of his life to to steal another man phrase. He would not have been able to achieve that without neil mccauley being yeah. a psychopath without and neither neil would McCauley. have max yeah <laughs> yeah that's the point max would not have achieved he mm -hmm. max would not become the cowboy with a head um were there not a monstrous bull chasing him to to complete the mural and uh interestingly um max does the same to vincent in a negative way um you know vincent is very clearly uh through the philosophy that he reveals to taunt Max, but also it does reveal who he is. And that's why it's a nifty bit of screenwriting is it's accomplishing so many things at once. Uh, Vincent is revealed, you know, he's clearly a social Darwinist. And the thing that Max does to Vincent is, as he very clearly states, you know, at the, near the end of the film, he's like, you're low down. I think you're low, brother. I think that there are the standard parts that are in other human beings missing in you and someone held a gun to your head and made you say what is going on in the head of this person over here you wouldn't be able to do it because like other people aren't real to him yes and what's what's interesting about that is when max makes clear to a social darwinist that there are things in him that are missing uh vincent begins to recognize that there is something wrong with faulty in himself that as as to quote again i'm going to keep quoting man he's damaged goods in a, in a in a tailored suit yeah and i think that those fractures begin to dissolve vincent and uh begin to unravel vincent and you know everybody can have and should and does have different opinions on what the coyote scene means yeah uh to me what that sequence is is you know the light goes green and max continues to wait and I think what happens to me, for me in that scene, what is happening is Vincent can't, or Max waits uh, for the coyote to cross through the light screen. Vincent is probably, I think, is sitting there wondering, why isn't Max going? Why isn't yeah. Max just hitting the gas? We have a thing to do. And I think in that moment where in the past, Vincent would just make a joke or, you know, say, let's punch it. You know, Lady Macbeth, you no longer have the cleanest cab in La La Land. He's recognizing, oh, he's stopping because he doesn't want to, risk killing this animal and i think in that moment you see this look of almost revelation on vincent's face like he's realizing i would never have done that yes and the consideration of that and the consideration that perhaps there is something missing in him it unravels him uh and you could even you know you could reach back to heat and be like you know macaulay is very clearly unraveling by the end of heat uh making decisions he would previously never have made or 
would have made, but he has built an entire lifestyle to prevent something like that from happening. He's he's invented a persona to keep himself under control, uh, much as Vincent does, and much as Vincent loses after this fact. And I, I find that interesting. I, I that the these two men have such a uh, if we want to quote True Detective again, boy, you two sure fucked each other up, didn't you? <laughs> and um, as is, I just find these films kind of twin films in a way. Uh, having a conversation with each other the way their main characters have conversations with each other and for as much as uh vincent inadvertently actualizes max max kind of inadvertently dissolves vincent and neither man seems to recognize that until it's far far too late for either of them to to do anything about it other than continue on the course that has been laid out for them by each other and that's that's some really fascinating shit for what for what on the surface is just kind of a thrilling drama or dramatic thriller in Los Angeles. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's you know, I, I watched this movie with my mom and it was hilarious, like watching her react <laughs> to it. But like, yes, I'm loving these like deep com philosophical conversations about archetypes, too, because I think it contains that as well. And I also think it's interesting the coyote scene is right after Fanning is killed. Mm. And I think oh that's when, I mean, we got to talk Fanning, but talk that's Fanning. when some thoughts I, about Fanning. Max realizes that he has to self-actualize in order to save himself. Yes. Oh yeah, I mean, at that point he knows he's fucked otherwise. Like, like no one is coming way. to save him. So and, he, yeah. that's the point when he, and, and maybe him resting, hesitating at the green light is like him making his starting to make his own choices mm -hmm. and and, and, you know and realizing that he can and and the only point of contention i'd have, have your your whole uh theory there trav is like i don't think max in in the end of this movie that vincent wants to happen max is not getting two in the chest and one in the head max is getting one in the head he's oh yeah crazy he's, he's, yeah, you're he's, right. he's, yeah, he's, he's, yeah yeah no he's the he's the He's the guy who's gonna he's gonna be nailed as a suicide and a crazy cab driver that does all this stuff. But right. yeah, you're so right. It's like in that moment, it's that. All right, let's 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 dive into Fanning um uh really quickly um in wrapping up because uh uh just like it happens, there's a beautiful symmetry. A year ago ish, you go and see uh Katie's lovely sister gets married, you and Jordan go and see uh this movie and a double feature, and you guys are on the precipice. Um, of going to see a man movie together mm -hmm. at Beyond Fest, which is very exciting. So before we dive into that and maybe preview um, some excitement with that, um, let's talk Fanning. Katie's like dirtbag dirtbag Hall of Fame Fanning. I don't like. I don't, I don't like him. I don't like him. I'm sorry. I don't like. What? Uh, the, you know, I don't <laughs> want to insult anybody. Uh, listen, he's, he's well. He's he's well performed uh, by Ruffalo. You know, I, I got to say, like like once or twice a month. I will mutter to myself because maybe Blake's right. Maybe I am creepy. I will mutter to myself. I don't know why. I will mutter to myself. Roofs all beat the shit. Roofs all beat the shit. Uh, I don't know why that <laughs> sticks with me, but it does. The way he does that, like, there's something cool about that. And I always, I always think about that. Uh, whenever someone is showing me something on their phone or TV, like my, I in my head, I hear, I hear roofs all beat. The, like, I want to say that about whatever footage they're playing. Um, yeah, I got to be honest. You know, if there's a flaw to the film for me, and the reason it's maybe not. My favorite Michael Mann is, is, is Thief, followed very closely by Heat, followed very closely by Miami Vice, and everything else kind of just arranges itself in a in a top whatever based on my mood of the day. 
Uh, I think the one, maybe the one, the only thing that kind of keeps collateral out of that top three for me is. Um, your mommy and daddy know you. You're right. Yeah, your well, mommy and daddy. Know like, you. But yeah, that's that's what's it, holding collateral back. Well, what's holding collateral back for me is Fanning is kind of just uh, he is a narrative construction that is basically designed to pop in every once in a while to explain to us why why Vincent is killing all of these people and connecting the dots for us that oh okay there's a case okay there's a the DA is getting ready to, to go to the grand jury tomorrow some indictments are coming down da 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 da. Um, and he kind of exists just to verbalize those things for us. He pops up, uh, does that, and then pops back out. And then, but can I, can I just touch on one thing? Can I touch on one thing? Can I just touch on one thing? I love in, in the spirit of the way that you've like structured your take, which I think is really fantastic about the, you know, one of the huge thematic preoccupations of this movie. I think Fanning. And it, like much, much like Ruffalo, and much like really great movies, where when you're with a new character, it feels like they feel like they're in their own movie. I feel like Fanning thinks that he's the hero of this movie. Oh, he he, mm. he definitely is in his own movie. There is that's, definitely a like, movie it's, it's happening a, with just Fanning. That's what I'm saying. That's why I really love him. So like, I do know he's a narrative construction. Obviously, you know, we we is part of the way that we like go through this process. It's impossible not to try and penetrate like the screenwriting trick trickery and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. what's so, what's so enriching for Katie and I in an ongoing basis is when we learn about things like from Elliot Koretz and Justin Lieberman about like the depth of field and how that changes the sound design of the movie. And like mm -hmm. these implicit things that you don't realize are big ticket items. Like you sort of, the more like face value things of like who's, who's doing the exposition and driving the overall conspiracy that's driving this thriller. It is Fanning. But I love that in this movie, every single time I watch him, I'm like, Fanning thinks he's the star of this movie. Oh yeah, like, he, he is. I, I love, I love that so much because every I'm like, bro, you're about to die. Like now, it's impossible to detach from my knowing his fate when I watch it. So it's just so interesting to me every time I watch him. He's so he's so uh, hypnotic in that regard because I'm like, oh, he, 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 this poor guy, he thinks it's his movie, not his movie. It's Max's movie, and you I know, get it's Max that. And, and I get that he's, I get that he's, you know, he's he's dirtbag hot. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Like I'm not denying that. Um, but he and he definitely is. You know, he's Janet Lee in Psycho. He's uh, yes. he's Angie Dickinson in uh, Dress to Kill. Um, it just it's just eh, you know he just he shows up. He drops some exposition. And when the movie, the one thing that does kind of make me chuckle is when the movie is done with his ass and doesn't need any more exposition. He takes two to the chest, one to the head, and they get him the fuck out of there. Like he's literally executed when his when his when his plot uh, convenience role is done and exhausted. The movie literally fucking executes his ass and moves on. I um, mean, I just want to say, aren't they all fucking narrative construction? Sure, they are. Yes. Isn't yes. everything, everything is a narrative? A narrative device. Everything is. Like... And unfortunately, we just don't get enough. I mean, man does his best. Ruffalo does his best. You can, you know, to do. Um, to provide character via performance and the things that he does, things that he says. Uh, you, there's nothing wrong with, I, I think that he's really great in the role, Ruffalo. Uh, I think the character is kind of interesting. I love that anyone working undercover narco vice in a Michael Mann movie has to have that fucking mustache. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I just, I, it's just one of those things that like it just he it just never quite coheres for me it, it, you can kind of feel the seams a little bit of, of why he's there 
and you know, I was never quite shocked when he got killed because of that. I felt I was a bit more like Rachel McAdams in Game Night when the when the uh, the beefcake bodyguard looks just like Blake gets sucked into a jet engine and she's just like, oh, he died. That's kind of how I felt when uh, Ruffalo got killed. I'm like, oh, he died. Eh, well, back to the movie, uh, back to the adventure at hand. Meanwhile, um, my mom is literally screaming at the oh, top really? of her lungs. <laughs> no! So you're saying yeah. that the all the Walsh women have a thing for the dirt bag. Yes. Yes. That hit her hard, that one. Yeah. So, um, so no, speaking this, of this, this is two in no. the chest, one to the head. I got one more thing I got to say, okay. I promise. Um, you know, the, so Vincent and uh, what's interesting about Vincent and Max is that they both have these uh, personas as prisons or prisons as personas. And I think what is interesting, yeah. much like Vincent and um, Neil, um, Neil's persona that, he, that becomes like a prison to him to survive is actually what gets him killed. And um, Vincent Hanna's ability to kind of play jazz, be an empath, read the room and play jazz with the materials that are given to him is what allows him to survive. You know, he sees the moving shadow in the field of LAX and he knows this is where Neil's going to come at me from. He knows just to, to blindly lift the gun and fire. Interestingly, this film ends exactly the same way where Vincent yeah. for all of his espousing of, Hey man, you'd play jazz. You don't know where you're going to be 10 minutes from now. Um, he does have a persona as prison. And that is uh, he, whenever a situation feels out of control to him, he will enact a very rigid set of rules to bring things, the world back into his favor. Uh, we see that happen in the middle of the, the fever shootout. And uh, we see it when he, Yohomi, when he kills the uh, the gang members, it's, it's, it's two in the chest, one in the head. That is how he kills people. And the only reason that Max is able to kill this master assassin uh, who's been doing this for, you know, working for, you know, offshore narco traffickers uh, for quite a while, uh, ex-military killing for the cartels, is that when you look at the the bullet spray and indentions in the door between them on the Metro Green Line where they, they have their, their face to face. There are in the door that is between them. There are two bullets in the center lodged in the center of the door and one at the top. He tried to do two to the chest, one to the head to kill Max. He is deep down. His persona is to kill only in that way. Whereas if you watch Max, Max moves his hand in a circular motion uh, he makes a circle with the gun as he fires. Sprang, he fires blindly. Sprang, what does he do for the first sprang. time in his life? The guy, the guy at the club, said he doesn't like jazz. He plays jazz in that moment. He becomes actualized, and he he learns from Vincent. He becomes actualized, and he shoots blindly and wildly, um, and just tries. He just tries for the first time in his life. He tries, and that is what kills Vincent. And Vincent is kind of infected by the old version of Max, which is to do things rigidly and un, and not change. And that is what gets Vincent killed. And I find that utterly fucking fascinating. It is my favorite part of the movie is that uh, is that idea of persona as prison. And mm -hmm. Max breaks out of his only because Vincent, the mad bull, helped him. Whereas Vincent becomes ensnared in his because Max infects him with that lack of actualization, that that entropy that was swallowing his life uh, transfers itself in a way to to Vincent. And and the very fact that the film ends on the Green Line MTA stop, which is where heat begins. Where heat begins. 
it was literally where he begins. It's like this, this Ouroboros. Um, I know I'm just rattling on, but I find that so fucking interesting. And the last thing I'm going to say, and then you guys can kick me the fuck off of here <laughs> is, um, as we all do, as we all do, uh, as we are, as we all, you know, in between thinking about the Roman empire, uh, sometimes <laughs> I will think about uh, the death of Socrates, which is an oil painting by the French painter Jacques Louis David. And if you've seen this, or if you if you're aware of the story here, you know Socrates was put on trial for infecting the minds of the youths of his age uh, by not worshiping the gods of the state, and he was forced uh, not forced. They actually gave him lots of chances not to. He said, "Fuck it, I'm gonna do it anyway," to uh, swallow hemlock and kill himself. And uh, Jacques David painted this portrait of that, um, this neoclassical portrait. It's a gorgeous painting. And at the edge of the bed, uh, while after he's poisoned himself, uh, Socrates is you know waving his hand around. He's angry, uh, and he's still he's still uh, expressing his philosophy to his followers. Uh, at the foot of the bed, Plato, gray hair, dressed in gray, is sitting with his head tilted downward, like a dead, like a, almost like a corpse. Oh, uh, and uh, I always think of that painting when I watch the ending of this movie. I don't think it's intentional. I couldn't find anything. I mean, obviously, man is a autodidact. I'm sure he is aware of Jacques Louis David. I'm sure he's, he's very aware of Plato, and he's very aware of Socrates. Um, but and it's not like Plato is the one dying in this painting, but he looks like he is. Whereas Socrates, his uh, his contemporary, is full of life and vigor. Uh, Socrates, Plato looks dead, dressed again, all in gray, gray hair, head tilted downward, slack, not moving. And what is interesting about both of these men, Socrates and Plato, is that, uh, you know, Socrates didn't even, you know, document or write down his philosophies. Uh, they were expressed as a series of conversations, back and forth arguments, if you will, philosophical arguments between himself and another party. And uh, Plato did much the same thing in what he called his 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 phaedos um plato's phaedos uh but uh, they, <laughs> both 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 philosophers basically expressed their philosophies as a series of dialogues and arguments between two parties that's what socratic irony is um and uh, the socratic method is and isn't that kind of what this whole fucking movie is 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 two dueling philosophies infecting each other wrestling with each other combating each other transmuting each other and so whether it's intentional or not, just to add a little extra bit of spice, a little flavor, a little extra something for pep in your step if you want it. Um, the ending of this film so much reminds me of that painting where one of these philosophers is full of piss and vinegar, frankly, and is energized and alive. And the other is sullen and sallow and gray and dead looking and has lost the argument, if you will. And isn't that kind of what this movie is? It's two philosophers and only one of them gets to win the argument and uh, be a completed vaquero on the horse. I don't know. This is just my mind wanders. And so I'm, I, I I'm, I'm be, glad we let him ramble. We'd be getting in with two paintings today. That's what we're doing. It's amazing. This was an amazing lecture. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> it's a lecture. No, it was great. <laughs> I learned so much about everything, about life. About Los Angeles and paintings and murals and philosophy. And, and you guys, much like Alan and, Jackson, a little bit, uh, a lot about living, a little about love. Uh, and, he, and, and, and and you also gave me Katie's reaction face. What when you said you didn't <laughs> like Fanning? Um, which is a I'm a sorry. Huge I mean, I will admit he's cute. He's cute. With his little slick back hair. Thank and his you. Mustache, <laughs> his jacket. 
and he looks cool and he's like when he's just like uh roofs i'll beat the shit roofs i'll beat the shit <laughs> roofs, I'll beat the i don't shit. know i love that well you two are about to embark on uh la beyond fest right now mm. as we're recording this podcast it will be up uh this podcast will be published during beyond fest i'm guessing and you two will meet and also meet the man as he's talking to Jimmy Hempel, you're going to see Michael Mann talking about Manhunter together. Mm-hmm. What a night that Tomorrow is going night. to be. Do you think I should ask about Miami Vice? I absolutely <laughs> demand. Do you think that, the, Jim what, what will kind take of question is that? audience questions? Will Jim take audience questions? He, he has in the past other Q&As. He you has, know what, and I know that Travis, Beyond Fest, they, before, they, they I, I feel like I need to do Q&A. the before, bit where I'm like, this, yo, I just want to say Miami Vice is a masterpiece. Yeah, you have to do the bit, number one. Number two, <laughs> grab Jim before the screening, Travis. You know Jim, his friend. And grab him and say, throw it to Katie. Got to throw it to Katie. No, I. this is too much pressure. <laughs> I will get, I will, you know... Uh, me and uh, uh our, again our good buddy jordan is going as well we will work on no peer pressuring, peer no pressuring i'm her. I, i'm and, i'm um, nervous i will slip you some more mango mojitos as i did at the miami vice <laughs> oh screening. yes there we go um, oh, i'm scared um katie <laughs> katie you have to for our people you have to I you know, know how happy the react if the reaction <laughs> is anything like uh, we're expecting mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it, i i deserve it i'm i i i'm the type of person that like <laughs> i love and respect artists and i have a fine time just being like cool you're over yeah, there yeah but i don't have to run up to you you can tell him that you love it from the safety of a seat it's q a so you know it's fine it's fine <laughs> I like um, how Katie says she doesn't have to run up to them when we all know full well she is going to be driving her shoulder into Colin Farrell's solar plexus <laughs> when he's doing yoga in a park one day and she's going to tackle his ass um, and he will never be seen again. This bit has gotten out of control. I was actually going to do a whole. Th- I was I was actually going to do a whole thing about how it was going to be a gender reverse boxing, Helena, but I'll, I'll save that for. Oh, another no, save that for another time. Another, yeah. another time and another show. Shout out to yeah. Green Longworth's great show. You must remember this, um, Travis. It's always a pleasure. Mm. This was excellent. I'm so glad that we did let you um, get to the death of get Socrates. That, yeah. No, the death of Socrates. That was amazing, amazing stuff. And I, I love that mural, um, uh, that mural. I'm going to put those pictures up so that people can check it out. Um, uh, like I'll, I'll, I'll make a link to it in the post. So if people are listening to this episode, go to oneheatminute.com. You'll see the link. One last um, one last random thing about murals if if anyone is, is interested in, in, in that um uh, agnes varda made a wonderful documentary in 1981 called uh murmurs uh which is entirely about the murals of los angeles and uh just to keep to keep things as wildly random in this episode as fucking possible wow let's end with an agnes varda 1981 documentary <laughs> i didn't know we joined the dots on a collateral confessions between uh, agnes varda and michael man but i'm here for it i'm really i like I to bring really... a lot of things to bear you know that renaissance uh, so... man he's renaissance. a renaissance man um but yeah i would i would recommend murmurs if anyone is fascinated with the topic of la murals which is an incredibly uh rich and interesting one and that's all i got to say about that i'll shut up enjoy manhunter this has been an absolute pleasure getting you in the cab can't wait and i am going to be waiting by my phone for an account of what happens and hopefully <laughs> someone in that crowd standing up and saying 
Miami Vice is a masterpiece and you guys cataloging the response from the great one. Um, I cannot wait. And I'm hoping very much that it's Katie Walsh because I think we'll get about seven episodes yeah, out of sure? it. So right. that we'll, would be we'll, fantastic. We'll, we'll get her there, Blake. Don't worry. We'll get her there. We'll yeah, get her it's, there. It's going to become a button on the, on the soundboard if, uh, if that's the question. Yeah. Or if, if said, okay. Okay. Every, the more you guys are saying, the more I'm literally <laughs> not going. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> No no pressure. Also, All this right. episode makes me realize, can you imagine the poor son of a bitch uh, uh, rideshare driver or cab driver that has to deal with me when I'm drunk and I'm talking about this shit in the backseat? Because oh. I do. I do. <laughs> you know that painting when Socrates drank hemlock? And like, yeah, just just made me realize the poor souls that ferried me around Los Angeles and the shit I've, I've, uh, I've said while, while doing so. And Amazing. Yeah. I'm sure they the loved only it. Thing, the only thing I regret, not having a mm. microphone. Not having <laughs> your stream of consciousness to listen to put some sound effects under drop in some clips um jesus christ that's that's what we do guys thank you so much for listening to another collateral confessions part of the miami nice umbrella um you can find a stack of episodes for travis on increment vice in this very feed if you want to do a search on whatever your podcast weapon of choice is or just go to oneheatminute.com or incrementvice.com you can find all of his stuff there we're looking forward so much uh, to Trav's growing tome on Brian De Palma. Um, mm. He's written some amazing pieces about De Palma at Brightwall Darkroom. You can probably find those. Check them out. Just search Travis Woods Brightwall Darkroom. You can see his whole catalog there. Um, really excited for some of that. Thank you so much for coming back, man, and talking to us again um, on Collateral. This has been a re- this has been a really fun one. Some good moments. This is a corker. A corker. Nicholas. <laughs> a classic. Oh. Not creepy. Love. Look, oh, I'll show creepy, you my eyes. Creepy, yeah. My hungover <laughs> eyes. Look at my loving hungover eyes yeah. to you, Travis. There's no, no, no. Oh, thank no, you, honey bunny. No, nothing, nothing but love. Nothing but love. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.